Welcome to the Crimson Thread. I'm John Behrens, pastor of Restoration Messianic Fellowship in the Boulder-Longmont area of northern Colorado. Our website is crimsonthread.com. This study was recorded during our normal Tuesday evening Bible study. Enjoy the study. So we're continuing our way through Hebrews. Last couple of weeks, what we've talked about is a comparison between the Old and the New Covenants, comparison between the tabernacle in heaven and the tabernacle on earth. And last week we went through the Yom Kippur service on the earthly temple where it said that the high priest only went behind the curtain once a year and he always took blood with him. So now what we're going to do, since we have earlier established that Yeshua is a priest according to a different order, which is the order of Melchizedek, what we're going to do today is we're going to talk through his sacrifice and why that's different from the sacrifice that the high priest makes. We actually got through 9, 10 last time, but let's back up to the beginning of chapter 9. What I want to do is just read the first 10 verses of chapter 9, and then we'll go into verse 11, which is the stuff we haven't done. So Hebrews 9. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section of which were the lampstand, the table, and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second section only the high priest goes and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. One of the things we said just briefly is lots of sacrifices in the earthly tabernacle have nothing to do with sin. The ones that do have to do with sin are for unintentional sin, and they specifically are typically, not entirely, but typically for errors that the nation Israel makes. In other words, the Sanhedrin or the high priest or the king makes errors, and there are specified sacrifices for those. There's also a couple of individual ones, but basically it's for unintentional sin. So one of the things we're going to see is Yeshua's sacrifice is going to be able to atone for intentional sin as well as unintentional sin, which, of course, the earthly tabernacle can't handle. Verse 8, By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place was not yet opened as long as the first section was still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifice were offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. And again, we talked about the time of Reformation and several things that might mean. It could mean Yeshua's return and millennial reign. It could be salvation of the individual. I personally happen to believe it's the new heaven and the new earth, but any of those other answers I can't argue with. 
one of the things that we're going to see back up in verse 9, sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Now, we're going to be talking about the conscience from here on down. And it's going to be a big deal. It's going to be mentioned a couple more times in connection with Yeshua and his sacrifice. The idea here is that when you sin, you go away from God. In other words, sin distances you, if you will. And very often, your conscience keeps you from coming back. You're ashamed and, and embarrassed and... Yeah, or this spanking's going to hurt, or, you know, however you want to look at it. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is that the sacrifices in the earthly tabernacle were not sufficient to cleanse the conscience. And again, the reason for that is they didn't deal with intentional sin. So now on down to verse 11. That's all by way of review, and, and verse 11 is where we start off tonight. But when Messiah appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, others will have the good things that are to come. Depends on what manuscript you're reading. Messiah appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. We have three things being contrasted here. First, you have the venue. The earthly high priest serves in the tabernacle or the temple on earth. Yeshua serves in the tabernacle or venue in the heaven that is not made with human hands. In other words, it's outside of this creation. Second thing is he is a priest who is authorized to sacrifice in that venue. And it was mentioned earlier in the book of Hebrews here that he was not authorized to sacrifice in the earthly tabernacle because he was not a Levite and he was not descended from Aaron. So it made a big deal about the fact that he was not eligible to sacrifice in the earthly temple or tabernacle. And so what it's saying here is Since he is a high priest of a different order, the order of Melchizedek as opposed to the order of Aaron, he is authorized to sacrifice in the one in heaven. And sort of by analogy, an earthly priest would not be allowed to sacrifice in the heavenly tabernacle. It appears from the argument in Hebrews here that the order of priesthood has a venue that's associated with it And that order of priesthood is the only order that's allowed to sacrifice in its own venue. And then the third thing is, in the earthly tabernacle, the high priest goes in with the blood of bulls and goats. In other words, he goes in with the blood of a bull to to atone for his own sins, and then he goes in with the blood of a goat to atone for the sins of the nation. Yeshua, when he goes in to the tabernacle, where he's authorized to sacrifice, goes in with his own blood. So you got three distinctions being made in these paragraphs. Furthermore, tent in heaven is not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. One of the things that we'll talk about as we go on is the question of who 
is covered by Yeshua's blood. The normal way you would think of a sacrifice is you do the sin, then you go sacrifice. It is not considered good form to show up at the tabernacle and say, okay, let's go ahead and sacrifice this sheep now because i got some heavy sinning I'm going to do this week. In other words, the sacrifice comes after the sin, in, in the case of those sacrifices that are for sin. And it would not be acceptable to do a preemptory sacrifice in the anticipation of sin. So, carrying that to the blood of Messiah, the sacrifice of Messiah happened after the sin of David, after the sin of Cain, after the sins of uh, Levi and Simeon, after the sins of everybody up to that point. So by the argument I have just made, the sacrifice of the blood of Yeshua covers them because the sacrifice was done after the sin. But for us, the sacrifice is 2,000 years prior to the sin. So the logical question then becomes, if the sacrifice was done before the sin, how then does the blood of that sacrifice cover present sins that occurred after the sacrifice? The venue in which the blood of Yeshua was offered as atonement for sin, the writer of Hebrews specifically says that venue is not of this creation. Time is a created thing. In the beginning, God created, among other things, time. In other words, he created the beginning. If time is a created thing, and the venue in which Yeshua sprinkles his own blood is outside of the creation, it's outside of time, therefore the blood can cover David, and it can cover you and me. So we don't have this problem of, gee, I offered a sacrifice last week and it should be good for another week yet, so I got some more sinning I can do. We don't have that problem with Yeshua. Come back to now to verse 12 again. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The combination of the venue being outside of the creation and the redemption that is secured being eternal is shorthand for what I just spent five minutes talking about. If the sacrifice is done in a place outside of a time, and hence the sacrifice secures an eternal redemption, is the Redeemer, Yeshua, also eternal? We worked through that a time or two ago when we were going through Melchizedek, who is presented without genealogy. Verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of, of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And again, notice this emphasis on conscience again. The sprinkling of defiled persons, what are we talking about there? That's after you've been in contact with death. The ashes of the red heifer serve to purify someone who has been in contact with death in some form. So what he's saying here is, if all of that 
sanctify for the purification of the flesh, then how much more will the blood of Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience? Now notice we're talking about two things. We're talking about the flesh and we're talking about the conscience. So the sacrifices in the earthly temple serve to purify the flesh. The one in the eternal temple then serves to purify the conscience. I will suggest that what we're talking about here is, and this is speculation on my part, what we're talking about here is this idea of work salvation. If you do the right stuff often enough and behave yourself well enough, you'll earn your own salvation. I think that's what's being referred to, but I, but I don't know. Verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. All right, so far we're really crisp. Yeshua is the mediator of a new covenant, in addition to being the covenant victim. He, he sort of serves both of those functions. So he's the mediator of the new covenant, so that those who are called may receive, and those who are called. Again, if you are a Calvinist, you'll fetch up here, saying that only the, only the elect are getting in. I believe that everybody is called, not everybody answers, my personal belief. So those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. And remember, we've talked many times here in the past about how we are not, in fact, living under the new covenant yet. And we talked about that a couple times ago, I think, in fairly great detail. The thing that the new covenant promises is the eternal inheritance. And we have an earnest that we will receive that inheritance, and that earnest is the Holy Spirit. Those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The death of Yeshua covers the transgressions that were committed against the law of Moses. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not covet. All of those. Not just national Israel, but all of them. Now, I'm going to go into an alternative... Well, actually, I'm going to read this translation first, and then I'm going to switch translations on you. So now in verse 16. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not enforced as long as the one who made it is alive. So what is being said in this translation, and by the way, all of your Bibles have virtually the same translation. The idea here is that we have a will as in the sense of a last will and testament, and the one who made the will dies because you don't get the inheritance promised by the will while the one who made the will is still alive. Okay, that's the sense of it. I am of the opinion that that's not a good translation. Let me go to another translation, and where I'm going is Young's literal translation, YLT. He wrote Young's Concordance. So this guy is a Bible scholar. He lived in the 19th century, and his literal translation, he, in fact, I'll read you something from the preface here. The preface to the second edition states, if a translation gives a present tense when the original gives a past, or a past 
when it has a present, a perfect for a future, or a future for a perfect, an A for a the, or a the for an A, an imperative for a subjunctive, or a subjunctive for an imperative, a verb for a noun, or a noun for a verb, it is clear that verbal inspiration has much been overlooked as if it had no existence. Now, the rest of it is in all caps, which it is in the original book, okay? The word of God is made void by the traditions of men. So, what he's saying is, is anything other than a completely faithful translation in all particles, verb tenses, and voices, anything other than that changes the word of God. And so his translation is what we would call today a mechanical translation. You know, if you take a web page and you feed it into Babelfish, you get a mechanical translation. And very often you wind up with English. And that what, that's what Young has done with the Bible. A word about translations, and, and you've all heard this before. Every translation is false. It's either false to the original language or it's false to the language you're going into because it is impossible to express equivalent thoughts in two different languages. In other words, a language has with it a way of thought. For example, if you speak English, you think one way. If you speak German, you speak in stacks. Noun, 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 verb. This is what you do with all those nouns. It's a stack-based language. So every language has a thought process that goes with it. And when you move to another language and try and capture that thought process, you really can't. Because the reader in the new language has a different thought process than the person who wrote the original. The fact that all translations are unfaithful is a tautology. I mean, it, it just is true. But what Young has tried to do is a mechanical translation. Now I'm going to read his translation of the same passage now, having said all of that. So I'm now going to pick it up in verse 15. All right. Now this is Young's literal translation. And because of this, of a new covenant he is mediator, that death having come, for redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, those called may receive the promise of the age during inheritance. For where a covenant is, the death of the covenant victim to come is necessary. For a covenant over dead victims is steadfast, since it is no force at all while the covenant victim lives. So what he's done is he has changed the sense of this dramatically. And instead of dealing with the last will and testament, what you are talking about is the sacrifice lamb. And what he's saying is, a covenant is not ratified as long as the lamb is alive. And it's only the death of the lamb that ratifies the covenant. Now, why do I think that's a better translation than the one I read out of the English Standard, or you can read in King Jimmy, or any of the other translations? The best argument I have heard for that is this is a Hebrew document, and Hebrews don't use wills. The division of property is decreed by, by birth. So the firstborn gets a double portion, and the remainder is divided up. 
So the idea of doing last will and testament, you know, where little Johnny gets the bicycle and Susie gets the silver and all that kind of stuff, is foreign to Hebrew culture. So the idea then that the writer here would switch over to a Roman legal system to describe the death of Yeshua is sort of a disconnect because the death of Yeshua is an extremely Hebrew thing. You can go with either translation, it's up to you, but it makes a lot more sense to me that what we're talking about is Yeshua is the covenant victim, the lamb who is slain. And until that lamb is slain, there is no covenant. In other words, as long as that lamb remains alive, the covenant has not been sealed. So it's the death of the covenant victim that seals the covenant. Part of the difficulty, I think, is this idea of a last will and testament, which makes perfect sense to all of us, because most of us, I am sure, have one. And we've gone to a lawyer, and we've sat down, and we said, all right, when I die, this is the disposition of the property I want, and so forth. Perfectly understandable in that context. I don't think that's what's being talked about here. In the the first place, Yeshua is not the owner of the property. Who's the owner of the property? God, the Father. Now, I'm Trinitarian, and I believe Yeshua and the Father are one. But even so, they have functions that they have taken for themselves. And the idea that the death of the Son confers deed to the world doesn't make sense in that context because it belongs to the Father. The covenant guarantees an eternal inheritance. Yeshua being the Son certainly inherits, but he would not be the testator in the legal sense. He would not be the one making the will. That would be God the Father who has made provision for the Son giving him the creation. So Yeshua's not the guy who would be making a will in this case, it would be God. The thing that makes sense to me, as I say, is this idea that he's the lamb, he's the covenant lamb, whose death seals the covenant. I'm Trinitarian, but God himself makes these separations for our understanding. Since God himself makes these separations between himself, his son, and his spirit, and he does that so we can understand to then smoosh it all around in a different way that doesn't make sense with that metaphor doesn't seem to me to be correct. I'm still in Young's. Pick it up at 15 again. And because of this, of a new covenant, he is mediator, that death having come for redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, those called may receive the promise of the age during inheritance. The whole point here is the inheritance. Since you're talking about inheritance, the translations you have, slipping right into will and and so forth, feels good. Verse 16, for where a covenant is, the death of the covenant victim to come in is necessary. For a covenant over dead victims is steadfast, since it is no force at all when the covenant victim liveth. Now to verse 18, and I'm going to switch back to the English standard now, to verse 18. Therefore, Not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, 
This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Now, this is another one of those errors in Hebrews. The first one which we talked about last time was having the altar of incense, or the golden censer depending, on the wrong side of the curtain. This one here, if you go back to Exodus 24, which is where the covenant is finally sealed, Moses does sacrifices and he does sprinkle the blood on the people. However, it does not mention that he sprinkles the blood on the book. Verse 21. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. I cannot find that in the Torah. There's two places that I see in the tabernacle that are sprinkled with blood. One is the base of the altar. So you you dash blood against the base of the altar. The other place is on Yom Kippur, you go behind the curtain and you sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. Moses may have done that, but he didn't record it for us in the Torah. Verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So again, what he's saying, he's going back to the comparison of the high priest taking in the blood of bulls and goats as compared to Yeshua taking his own blood. And so he's talking about purification of the earthly tabernacle as opposed to the purification of the heavenly one. So that's the point of this whole riff is that the heavenly one is more pure, if you will. I'm in 23 and a half. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, for Messiah has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And again, we talked about that extensively at the beginning of the hour. The tabernacle in heaven is not of this creation, which means that it is not bound by our time domain which means that the sacrifice that Yeshua made in that venue, which is outside of the creation, covers sins inside of the creation from Adam all the way to the end of Revelation. Since it is outside of time, it does not need to be done repeatedly. It only needs to be done once because the entire time spectrum is covered. 27. And just as it was appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Messiah, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so there what we're talking about is the redemption. Everybody understand the difference between forgiveness and redemption. Two different words, they're spelled differently, right? Let's do it real simple. No no theology here. Let's just be simple. Let's say that you take your blouse into the dry cleaners. So you you go into the dry cleaner and you drop off your blouse or your laundry or whatever it is you drop off and you pay for it. So your 
clothes will get clean. They have been paid for. In other words, washing away the sin, I'm using, taking liberties here, washing away the sin from your clothes has now been paid for. They have not been redeemed. When you go down to the dry cleaner and pick them up is when you redeem them. Atonement is the payment. Redemption is the collection of the thing purchased. What it's saying here in 928 is Messiah having been offered once to bear the sins of many, in other words, for atonement, will appear a second time not to deal with sin. In other words, he's not going to pay for the dry cleaning again, but to save those, redeem, take those who he's already paid for. The sin has been paid for. The blood covers the sin. You have not yet been redeemed because he has not come and picked you up. I'm going to quit. I'm not going to start on chapter 10. Would somebody like to close in prayer?